You now bow with me as we continue our service together, as we prepare to enter God's word. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who thought of children. They're not our idea, they are your idea. That, Lord, each one of us has started our lives as a helpless baby. We started them as infants. We needed everything done for us. And we had parents who took care of us. And because of them, Lord, we have grown up and we're here today. And so, Father, as we acknowledge the care that our earthly parents have given us, how much more have you, our Heavenly Father, provided everything that we need so that we could be here today, that we could worship you, that we could know you, and that we could be called your children. What an awesome thing. And we just acknowledge you today as our Father. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your working in our lives, that none of us is here this morning by accident. You have seen this day since the day you created the earth and beyond. You knew that we would be here. You knew the word that each one of us needed to hear. And so, Father, I just know that you've gone before already and prepared the way. And so I just ask that your Holy Spirit would open our ears, open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would just give me the clearness, the boldness to speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning, I've entitled this sermon, Selfies, Kids, and Service. You may be puzzled a little bit at this title, but uh, hold on just one second. got to do something before I, before I continue here. One second. Oh, not bad, not bad. I'll get another angle. Hold on. Just bear with me. Sorry about that. Okay, that was, that was a good one there. I like that picture. That's good. That's going on my Facebook profile. <laughs> Does everyone know what I just did? What's that? Yeah, that's right. I took a selfie, quote unquote. Now, everyone here who didn't know what a selfie was is a self-portrait, hence selfie. It's an abbreviation for taking a picture of yourself. They are an increasingly growing trend on our social media sites like Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and every other one that you can think of. And, of course, they're what I just did. People holding a camera at arm's length and taking a picture of themselves. Or sometimes it's someone taking a picture of themselves in a bathroom mirror, and then they get the reflection and take a picture, a selfie that way. In fact, I've got a couple of pictures here that I want to show you of something that's happening right now in the lead-up to the Sochi Olympics. It's this latest thing that's gone viral on the Internet um, called the so-called Selfie Olympics. All right, so I'm going to have a couple of examples here for you. Uh, Corey's going to pull the first one up here. These uh, participants are challenged to post self-taken portraits of themselves in extreme athletic or just absurd poses. So there's the first one. That is extreme uh, tooth brushing. Is that how you'd call it? I believe if you can make it out there, she's leaning on the sink, and she's taking the picture with her foot. <laughs> There's, there's the first one. So there's an example of the extreme selfie Olympics. Now, the second picture he's going to pull up here. There's a, an interesting take on having your morning coffee. Does anyone have your morning coffee and check the news like that? <laughs> there's there's a, a new take on it. And uh, the third one here has more of a musical flavor to it. There's uh, the music man who's uh, playing multiple, multiple instruments at the same time. 
Now, these are just a few examples. There are dozens and dozens. If you go on Facebook or Google and type in Selfie Olympics, there are piles of these pictures. And the vast majority are done in good fun. Now, before you go thinking that it's just teenagers who are doing things like this, it's also adults who are taking selfies. In fact, some of the most important people and most powerful people, I should say, in the world are also taking selfies. In fact, some world leaders couldn't help themselves, if you may have been watching the news a few weeks back. President Obama was caught in the act of taking a selfie with some other world leaders at the funeral of Nelson Mandela. Let's just say that one didn't go over so well. Him grinning and whatever. Michelle's not looking so impressed over on the other side. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's not just kids who are doing these things. Now, the question, of course, you're going to ask now is, why am I showing you all of this? Well, the things I showed you here are mostly harmless fun. But the reason I'm showing this to you, and the name Selfie, I believe is a great representation of what our world is becoming increasingly today. It is a very good example of our culture's trend towards being absorbed with self. We're all about self-promotion, all about promoting our self-image or our self-worth or whatever we feel we want to show other people about ourself. And we've become self-centered, self-absorbed as a society. And so we've increasingly become sort of this me, myself, and I mentality as a culture. And I believe that this is a small representation of that, that, you know, there was a time, I remember, where people used cameras to take pictures of other people, like this. Not anymore. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say not anymore. But more often, if I take a picture of someone else, the trend is now to hold it up so you're in the picture. You know, our photo albums as kids, there's hardly any pictures of mom. Why is that? <laughs> Mom's the one behind the camera. She's taking pictures of others. She views them as more interesting than having herself in the picture. That's something that we used to see, not so much anymore. And so we see this increasing obsession with promoting ourselves. It's all about me. Now, the Bible has something to say about this attitude as well. The Bible calls it selfishness. The Bible describes selfishness and everything that is associated with it as something bad. In fact, it calls it sinful. But on the other hand, our world today calls it clever things like self-empowerment. You know, we put a, a good spin on it. And we use these slogans to promote it as well. You know, advertising in all ways, shapes, and forms uses these sorts of ideas to sell their products. Things like, you deserve it. Or, because you're worth it. You ever heard slogans like that? If you watch enough TV commercials, you'll hear them. One of the biggest promoters of this self-absorbed way of thinking is the lottery. You know, if you've ever seen a lottery commercial on TV, most of you have. If you've watched any amount of curling, you can't have helped but seen a few lottery commercials. Or any amount of hockey games, they're all in there. All right, so Lotto 649, you know, the question they ask is, what would you do with fill-in-the-blank amount of money? What would you do with $50 million dollars? You know, just imagine what you could do with all that money. And then they begin to show images of what you may think you would do with that money. So what kind of things do they show? Typically, they show someone, you know, on a luxury yacht in the Bahamas, 
Maybe flying a helicopter. You know, something extravagant. The sun is always shining. Unless maybe they might show a quick glimpse of someone like heliboarding or skiing down some mountain slope somewhere. But it's all exotic. It's expensive. It's all absorbed about the self. It's all about what I'm going to do to enjoy this money. Why don't they instead use pictures? I've wondered what would happen to lotteries if instead of showing those sorts of pictures, they began to show images of someone serving homeless people in a soup kitchen. Imagine what you would do with $50 million and then that image flashes on the screen. Hold on a second. What if the next image after that was showing someone in a few brief snapshots using that money to found a children's home for orphan children in Uganda? And you see them writing out a check and you see smiling children running into a place to live. What if they showed those pictures instead? What if they showed them dropping, can you just imagine this, a massive check in a church offering plate? (sighs) What would the world do with those sorts of images? And why don't they use them? Why don't they promote using this money to help others? Well, the answer is very, very simple, actually. You already know the answer. The reason is it doesn't appeal to our most fundamental and base of instincts. Selfishness. You see, I believe one of the most compelling arguments that this book, the Bible, is actually true is because of how accurately it describes sin. This book describes sin to more painstaking, nitty-gritty detail than anything else on the face of this planet. Because the evidence of this accuracy is all around us. Just look around. Look at the world. Look at the news headlines. Look at our own lives and our own temptations that we deal with. And this book is bang on. It describes our selfishness and our sin so accurately. And because of this, I I just believe this is one of the most compelling arguments that this book is true. In this book, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes how all descendants of Adam are born with this condition of sin. And so he basically says sinning, selfishness comes naturally to us. For example, you don't have to teach any of these toddlers that were up front here this morning or any of these children, you don't have to teach them how to be selfish, do you? But you have to teach them how to share. Selfishness will be the first instinct of any toddler, but sharing, that needs to be trained, that needs to be taught. You see, Most recently, me and Leanne have found this interesting phrase that Declan has been using. And I can assure you that we did not teach him this phrase. And yet, for whatever reason, it is now his favorite thing to say. Can you guess what it is? I don't want to. (laughs) Yeah. And he he thinks that that's enough reason. Declan, time for supper. I don't want to. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter if you don't want to. Get your butt in here. I don't want to. Well, I'm going to warm that thing up. No, okay. I'll I'll just (laughs) slow down there. But, you know, as a toddler, he he uses that as the end of the argument. I don't want to. I didn't teach him that. Leanne didn't teach him that. He learned that somewhere all on his own, and now he loves using it. I found this uh, interesting little poem, if you want to call it that, called Toddler Property Laws. I thought I'd share it with you. It goes like this. This is from a toddler's perspective. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. 
If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you lay it down, it's mine. If it's broken, you can have it. This is, this is true. It's why we laugh, right? We've seen all of these things. It's true. You see, this, this sinful, selfish nature, each one of us is born with it. We don't have to learn it. We don't have to pick it up. It's pre-programmed into each one of us. And so at some point in every child's life, each one will need to meet Jesus at the cross to have that sinful nature forgiven and healed. But to find Jesus, children, like all of us, need to be pointed in the right direction. Like an arrow fired from the hands of a skilled archer, it needs to be pointed directly, squarely at the right target. Of course, that target is salvation through Jesus Christ and a life lived for him. But in order to reach that goal, they need to be nurtured, taught, they need to be equipped, and above all, they need to be loved. Radically, drastically, they need to be loved in all of this. And that is why the act of dedicating these children to the Lord this morning, I believe, is just so important. Because we as parents... And as a church family, we realize that these children need us to show them the way to Jesus. And and not just to point them in the right direction, but to show them what it looks like. To show them what walking with Him, talking with Him, living for Him looks like day by day by day. And as we do this, we are heading them in the right direction. But we also realize that this incredibly important goal, we have this chilling realization and I do here again this morning, of how imperfect we are as parents. You know, we don't have everything figured out. We're, we're not just going to go through this and make no mistakes along the way. I know this. Because we too struggle with the temptation of sin and selfishness. Every single day, those temptations still come our way. And so we need help. We need each other. We need this community of faith. And most importantly, we need God. Reaching this goal is not for the faint of heart. You know, defeating sin and selfishness is not just this walk, stroll in the park. It is a knock-down, drag-out fight to the finish. It is a battle royale. It is not something for the, for the faint of heart, something to just work at once in a while. It requires full commitment to fight this good fight. And as I'm saying these things, perhaps you kind of think I'm getting too sensational about it all, but just in case you haven't noticed... In addition to the battle that we, each one of us, faces against our own sinful natures, we also have an enemy in this world who is constantly putting traps, snares, landmines in front of us, trying to take us out, trying to distract us, trying to hurt us in such a deep way that we just want to give up. In addition to this, we don't even mention that the morality of our culture around us is becoming increasingly hostile to God and the things of God. All of this is, of course, nothing new as we look at the history of the world. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he wrote about the condition of Canada perfectly 1,900 years ago. Do you know that? He described our country and the way we're headed perfectly to a T 1900 years ago now how could he have been so accurate 
The reason he could be so accurate is because nothing's changed about the core nature of sin and selfishness. 1,900 years have passed, and we as human beings still struggle with the same things. Now, if you think I'm just making these things up, we're going to take a quick look at the book of Philippians. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn there with me. So the book of Philippians, this is a letter that was written to an ancient city called Philippi. Paul is writing this letter to the church there in Philippi. And so we're going to continue from where we left off last week in Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 18. In verse 18, we begin to read, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. What does that mean? What does it mean? Their God is their stomach. Here's our stomach. How could this be my God? He describes them that way, in a very physical, literal way. Their God is their stomach. What Paul is saying is that their number one priority is not the true God of heaven, but instead the God of self-gratification. They may even give lip service to God, but they're actually most concerned with satisfying their own insatiable appetites for pleasure. And that comes about in many ways. It comes about in the literal way of our stomachs. We like good food, and so we can pursue good food and, and eat lots, and, and we can even take that to excess, and the, and, and the Bible calls that gluttony. And so their God is their stomach. They're, they're gluttons. And then he goes on to say that their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. You know, as we think of these people, their God is their stomach. There's this guy by the name of F.B. Meyer, a great preacher of the past, who described these people with keen insight. He says, There is no chapel in their life. It is all kitchen. There is no chapel in their life. It's all kitchen. There's no room for God. There's no place for worship. It's all about me, my appetite. And so here he says, their glory is in their shame. In other words, they were proud of the very things that they should have been ashamed of. So they were proud of their gluttony. They were proud of their excess. They were proud of their luxury, proud of their sexual exploits, proud of their orgies and their deviancy. They weren't hiding these things away in the closet, you know, kind of like we know these things are bad. They were parading them out in the public eye for all to see. We're proud of these things. Does that sound familiar to you? Is this beginning to sound a little more like our world today? Things being paraded in the public eye for all to see, a spectacle of things that, you know, in a bygone generation, people would have just been so shocked they wouldn't have known what to do. And yet today, these things are on public display everywhere around us. You know, as we think of this, some of the things that come to mind today in every major city in Canada, every major city in Canada hosts an annual gay pride parade. Now, you can debate the merits of having a parade or not, celebrate the things you want or not, but I am... I should, I should be careful in how I say this. I got caught in one of these parades once in Winnipeg. I was headed to a ball game. And uh, we're, we're going to the Forks, and all of a sudden, 
here's a parade. And I'm like, why are those people wearing no clothes? And we got to get across the parade. Like, this is in broad daylight in the middle of Winnipeg. People are literally wearing leather and all kinds of things that I just didn't want to describe or see. And yet there I am, and we've got to get through this thing. So yes, me and my brothers darted through one of these gay pride parades. And I just asked the question, you can have a parade, but when we have a major city having things that people are displaying in a graphic way, the need to take pride in their sexuality, but then insist that everyone else must be in view of it and applaud it as well. In fact, if any city mayor refuses to attend one of these parades, he is dragged out in the media, chastised, you know, declared a homophobe, you name it, because this has happened multiple times. Their glory is in their shame. You know, it sounds like Paul could have been writing about us today, doesn't it? And there, there's only just one small example that I gave you. Here's another. One of the most well-known characters on the popular TV show Dragon's Den, which I enjoy watching, by the way, is uh, this guy named Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary is this insanely wealthy venture capitalist, which basically means he works the stock market and businesses and all these kinds of things. He's insanely wealthy, and his favorite, one of his favorite sayings is, greed is good. And he'll say that all the time, greed is good. Or then he'll, he'll badger these people and say, yeah, but how is this going to make me any money? Because it's all about the money. Greed is good. Greed is good? Really? Since when? Since when is greed good? You know, he's actually boasting, bragging about something bad and calling it good. But doesn't that just about sum up the entire stock exchange and banking systems of our world? They may not say it out loud, but they believe it in their hearts. Greed is good. Greed is good. Why do you think our world is in such financial difficulty? Why do you think government debts are in the trillions and trillions of dollars? It's because in our hearts we've embraced this attitude that, yes, greed is good. And Kevin O'Leary may say it out loud, and we say, oh, he shouldn't say that. But in our hearts, are we behaving any differently? Their glory is in their shame, Paul says. The world is upside down. What God calls good, the world calls bad. What God calls bad, the world celebrates as good. What kind of upside-down world are we living in? Paul concludes in verse 19 by saying, their mind is on earthly things. Of course, it's easy to point the finger at obvious targets, right? But what about you and me here today? He says their mind is on earthly things. Has your mind been on earthly things this past week? Guilty, <laughs> right? I am. Because to some degree, we can't help it. We still live in this world. You know, we still have to think about things like, you know, making supper and paying the bills and shoveling the snow out of the driveway and changing the battery in the car and, you know, all of these things that just happen in the world around us. They, they just require our attention from time to time. We, we can't help but think about earthly things. So what's Paul saying here? What Paul, is, what Paul is saying is that they are only thinking about earthly things. That's it. That's where all of their attention goes. There's no room for anything else. They are only thinking, dwelling constantly about earthly things. Only living for their pleasures in the here and now and giving no thought to God. Giving no thought to the future and to eternity. So then the question becomes, where's your mind? Is it only on earthly things or is there room 
for a chapel in your life? Or is it all kitchen? In verse 20, Paul points to where the Christian mind should be focused. He says this. He turns, turns the corner. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. What a change. It's not earth anymore. He's lifting us above the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, are you living your daily life with your true country in mind? Forget about your citizenship in Canada. Where is your true nation? Are you living with that place in mind? Or are you only thinking about living in the here and now? C.S. Lewis once said, It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. In Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, Paul, who wrote to the, the Christians in Rome, says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. He's referring, of course, to the Spirit of God. And the bottom line is, aim for Jesus and live in His Spirit, and your prevailing attitude in this life will increasingly become selfless. Your theme question will be, how can I serve others? But aim for the things of this life. Keep your attention focused solely on this earth, and your prevailing attitude will be increasingly selfish. Your theme question will be, how can others serve me? So stop and consider this. What is the number one priority in your home? Give some thought this morning to the atmosphere and the tone you most commonly associate with your house and the people that you live with on a daily basis. Is there kindness, lack of kindness, patience, lack of patience, encouragement, critique? Do you feel that others in your family are considerate of you? Are you being considerate of them? As you think of this, I want you to listen to what James writes. James is writing here to Christians, but the Christians he's addressing are obviously struggling with these exact things as it comes to selfishness. James 4, verses 1 to 4 James says, What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you are asking with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Huh. What a description. I told you this book describes sin more accurately than anything else in this world. You know, is there ever fighting and quarreling in your home? Sorry, let me rephrase that. How often is there fighting and quarreling in your home? I don't think the home exists where there's never fighting and quarreling. But how often is this happening? You know, Paul says, rest assured that anytime there's fighting and quarreling, some sort of selfish desire is at the root of it. So if you want to have a more harmonious, a more peaceful home, deal with your selfish desires. Deal with them. Deal with that desire to get your own way, to get even, to get revenge, to be served. You know, I saw this bumper sticker a while back. It says, get revenge. Live long enough to be a problem to your children. <laughs> like... What a way to live, you know? 
I'm assuming these were parents or grandparents who had this bumper sticker on their car. I'm just thinking, like, really? Is that your motto for life? You're getting revenge? You're just clinging to life. I'm not going to die. Those kids are going to pay. You know, like, really? That's how you want to live? You know, what a way to live. You see, wherever you are, whatever you do, whoever you're with, your core nature always tags along. You don't just leave your core nature at home and then head out and be with your family and friends. It's with you. He's tagging along. You see, if, if I'm a selfie sort of person, only thinking of me and self-centered me and promoting me at home, I'm going to be that way when I go out to work. I'm going to be that way when I come to church. Yeah, at church, we try to hide it. We'll mask it. We'll dress up in nice clothes and we'll smile. And we'll sing. But really, if we're, if we're for that way, in our real core nature, it will show itself in one way, shape, or form. Selfishness will find a way to show itself. It is that insidious. So if selfishness and all of its forms are so sneaky and so core to who we are, what can we do to deal with it? What is the antidote for selfishness? You already know the answer. And so rather than me telling you the answer, I want to show you one more picture. And Corey's going to pull that up for us. This picture is the antidote for our sin and selfishness. Does that picture do anything to you? This is what it cost to have selfishness and sin in all of its forms dealt with. The cross of Jesus Christ. It took radical, sacrificial love. It took the kind of love that was so willing to not think of itself, but to think of the other, that it was willing to put itself on a cross. And as you see those wounds and those those flog marks across his chest, Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. Those stripes that we see represented are ours. The punishment of those nails are ours. We deserve that for our sin and our selfishness. And Jesus so thought of us rather than himself that he took it upon himself that the punishment was paid so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be healed, and so that we too could live a life just like Jesus, a life of radical and sacrificial love. The cross of Jesus Christ is where sin and selfishness goes to die. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Going to the cross of Jesus Christ is an all-or-nothing proposition. There's no fine print or exclusionary clauses that read, I want to have all my sins forgiven, I want salvation, but I want to hold on to my sinful passions and desires. You will not find that anywhere in the Bible. You're just not. And yet, how often do we as Christians still try to hold on to this selfie way of thinking, this selfie way of living, when Jesus says, if you come to the cross, all of your selfish desires and ambitions come with, and they're crucified. They're crucified. They're put to death. There's no room left for any other way of thinking or living when we come to the cross. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Love, my friends, love is the motive. Love is the means of how we do this, of how we live this life. One of sacrificial love. Thinking of others ahead of ourselves. Of course, like Paul, we all know that we still struggle every day against that old selfie attitude that keeps trying to rear its ugly head. So what do we do about it? Well, Paul says, get ruthless. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. He doesn't say just put it away for a little while, put it in a shelf. He says, put it to death, put a stake through its heart. Deal with it. If you've been a Christian for five months or 50 years, you know that the battle against that old nature doesn't just go away. It's a daily battle. It's a daily fight. And that is why we must always stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that too often we view the cross as this one-time event. And maybe we'll go back and visit it on Good Friday, but then we don't think about it again. But I believe that we need to keep the cross in daily focus every day of our lives. We need to remember the cross of Jesus Christ every single day. And I believe that's why Jesus told his disciples to pick up their cross daily and follow me. You know, I don't want to mislead any one of you here this morning into thinking that this is easy. It's not. It is not easy. But it's worth it. It is worth it. The bottom line is going to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you go there, if you choose to go to the cross of Christ, receive his forgiveness and his grace and his love for yourself, you cannot leave unchanged. You cannot leave and go and live a selfie life. You just can't. Jesus says, come, but bring it all with you. Lay it down. Have it crucified. And then live the life that I want for you. God's love demands a response. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all have died. That's you and me. Jesus died once, so that we have died in our sins. You, do you believe that? Paul says he's convinced about this. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So if you're not any different today than you were before you went to the cross of Jesus Christ, something's wrong. If you're living a life that's full of those selfish features, then something's wrong. You need to reassess who's really in charge of your life. You need to head back to the cross of Jesus Christ and spend some time on your knees. Because your reason for existing isn't just about you. It's all about the one who made you who died for you, and then how you can love him in return. May God add his blessing to you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbled by your word. We are humbled because we know our selfishness. We know how often, Lord, we get caught in this selfie way of thinking and living where our God is our stomach and And we just focus on these earthly things and we get so cluttered and so bogged down by them we lose sight of you and there's there's no room for you anymore. 
And so, Lord, we come before you humbled and we simply repent. We confess and ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for living this way. Father, I pray that as we come again to the cross, that we would kneel with genuine repentance and say, Oh, Lord, I am sorry. I'm sorry. Would you clean me up again? Would you heal me? Would you help me, Lord, to live for you today the way you would want me to, with radical, sacrificial love to everyone around me? Because I can't do it without you. I need you, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, we just pray that prayer right now. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who's maybe just praying that prayer for the first time, oh Lord, would you just be near to them right now? Give them an awareness that you are here and you're speaking to them. I pray, Father, that through this you would build us up, that we would go out, out of here today, Lord, changed, not the same as when we entered, but that we would say we've been to the cross, we've met Jesus, and we're leaving here different today. Oh Lord, may it be according to your will, I pray in Jesus' name.